Hi, my name is Paul Podolsky, and I am the host of Things I Didn't Learn in School, about many of the important lessons that we pick up after our formal education is over and turn out to be just as important. Enjoy. My guest today is a longtime friend and a very thoughtful person, Iskander Enikayev, who is a physician and a psychiatrist trained in Russia and now operating in the United States, running a series of clinics that have uh, employing over 42 psychiatrists and are treating more than 4,000 patients. So Iskander, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Paul. Most listeners will have no idea who you are. So tell your story a little bit. Where did you grow up? How did you get into medicine and psychiatry, uh, your training, immigration, just your background? Okay, so uh, I was born in Ufa, which probably sounds quite non-familiar to majority of our listeners. But in uh, actually, it's a big city approximately with one million of population, roughly 1,000 miles away from Moscow to the east towards Ural Mountains. It's actually kind of cradle of Ural Mountains. Uh, Ural Mountains separate uh, European and Asian part of Russia. I was born in a family of two physicians, two psychiatrists actually. So when I became a psychiatrist later on, I was recalling my choice to become physician and to become psychiatrist. And what was surprising me that I do not remember <laughs> any other, any other choice I ever considered. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, majority of my peers, my majority of my friends as majority of the kids on the planet were thinking about like becoming a uh, fireman, policeman, military, uh, probably physicians also, probably, I don't know, race car drivers, probably professional athletes and so on. But as far as I remember myself, you know, I kind of was thinking only about becoming psychiatrist and yeah. nothing else. It Not because I was so devoted to specialty. It was, I don't know, it's, it, again, you know, it's hard for me to recall the initial point when I came to this idea, but it all, as long as I remember, so it was only idea uh, in my mind. So I was growing up in Soviet Union. I was born in 1957, so I'm speaking about like 60s. And it was a time when like, you know, kind of the regime was on the uh, full blowing. And uh, I eventually developed kind of personality, which tends to be very uh, individualistic and independent. With really bitter taste to everything we consider as a kind of communal life in Soviet Union. So I, I don't want to mix it up and confuse with, um, you know, kind of meaning of community in the United States. Quite a different story. Because mm-hmm. in the community, you, you're expecting some type of the set rules, which you may at least can make some influence, right? And it's kind of usually reasonable and um, rational. And so, supposed to benefit everyone so here is different story you kind of you're staying uh you're staying in a situation in environment when the rules and principles and the whole philosophy of life established and created by someone else and you 
you, you have really kind of probably very kind of bitter taste about what was going on around you from the very childhood. And you, you're developing kind of double, triple, sometimes even quadruple probably, like, you know, sets of philosophy and psychologists, you know, speaking and listening publicly about something else, quite differently in family, quite differently like in so-called kitchen, where a lot of conversations in, in, in Soviet life was taking place, of course, with the friends and so on. Most of the time we're playing sports from hockey, soccer or football, as we call it in Europe, volleyball, basketball, lapta, which is some kind of simplified version of the American baseball. But we were not kind of just kind of street gang. Uh, we, so of course, like it was very, a lot of rivalry with the local teams where we're playing sports and very commonly it's was it was involving fighting, but we were also like reading a lot, and I think it's very specific part of the of the Soviet society at that time. I was very grateful to my father later on when I again I was recording my childhood because at the age of six, not even going to the school yet, my father brought me to the local library, and I started reading intensively as well as anyone from my friends around me, and so I was kind of reading everything from Russian to world classics and, of course, adventures and, you know, um, and the books like science fiction was very popular at that time. So it was a time when I introduced myself to the uh, well-known world writers like Main Reed, Jack London, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and so on later on. And I was swallowing the book, sometimes like making daily trips to the local library. And, of course, we also borrowing books from each other because it was a tradition. From the very early childhood, I was uh, always prefer uh, street life or our apartment building life, uh, yard, as we call it, you know, in our reality at that time. And my team of friends, like, you know, to the school, to the so-called pioneers, which is the early stage of communist the ideology when the kids at the age of seven uh, from the very first uh, grade of the school were like, you know, starting their career as a pioneers and everyone was a pioneer. After that, it was more or less already real choice whether to become a member of communist party or not. So it was for some people probably kind of privilege. It was not so easy for some people who would like to make career at Soviet Union to become member of communist party. So, but majority of the population in Soviet Union, they were not communist formally, at least, like, you know, not the, not the members of the party. They trying to keep it up as a elite class and opportunity to make a kind of career and to raise in your social status. We, we're getting pretty good education with regards of everything from like science to the literature and history and geography. It's well known that, like, you know, the Soviet kids were relatively well-educated and, like, with a good knowledge of geography, for example. This is your finishing. Yeah. Uh, your training, the Soviet Union breaks up. But just before we get off the childhood, this yeah. double, triple, quadruple thinking. Yeah. Describe a little bit what that was like. I was fortunate enough to be born in generation, which kind of escaped Stalin regime. And what it means that we didn't have some type of the insight and very strong instinct of safety and fear 
which was very common to the generations before us, because it was a generation which really suffered and generation which really was seeing people around them being killed, arrested, like, you know, disappeared in the prisons and concentration camps and so on. So I was born in 1957, and it was a time when Stalin already died, and Khrushchev came up with the ideas of some type of kind of loosening rules and giving, like, more freedom to society. At the time, like, you know, uh, when I was about, like, four or five years old, it was a fresh air of changes. Unfortunately, it didn't go far away. And so it was kind of stop and eventually kind of get back to the more orthodoxical regime. But that, what that double psych, like a double or triple psychology, it's, it's, it means that like you're, you're listening something in official, like, you know, school lessons, particularly something which was devoted to the history of Soviet Union or history of Communist Party. Or it was, of course, ideological bias everywhere. Like, you know, when you're studying history or even literature, so it was always accent like towards the like the kind of uh peasants rebellions like you know uh people's attempts to free the country and you know it's it was it was always biased and always getting kind of some type of the positive light into the any history events and something which would, did not fit this picture was not just like you know in the uh, in the topics we study but again, it's also kind of your formal education, besides, of course, like getting non-ideologic information. So after that, you're coming to your home and to your family. And I don't remember when I was a kid, my parents like speaking openly about like, you know, the how bad like, you know, the government is and society is. They try to avoid it. And I, I guess not just because they were like cowards. So they, it was a their idea to protect us from the potential troubles, and it was reality. I mean, so it's any type of dissent with society very easily may bring you troubles. So the easiest way was, like, you know, to be kicked out from the school, and very traditional punishment was to be kicked out from the Kamsamol, which means that you're not part of the Kamsamol, which everyone's a part of, and so you're automatically losing your right to go to the college or, or university, and uh, of course to be kicked out from university. So it was kind of, if let's say, if you in dissent, or particularly if you on open dissent, it was dangerous. Somehow. I, I spoke a lot with my parents, particularly with my father, mm -hmm. uh, about psychiatry and about different aspects of psychiatry. So I never spoke with him, for example, specifically about the content of anxiety, uh, sorts of anxiety provoking sorts for the patient who, whom he was treating. I, I also was practicing as a psychiatrist. So up to my, like up to the age of 33. So I have clinical experience working as a psychiatrist in Soviet Union and um, in Russia later on. Well, of course, like, you know, as you know, after the perestroika, everything was changing and society loosened up. And so it was real, real kind of freedom of speech and so on expression. But before that, I don't think that a lot of people are saying, oh, I'm anxious because I kind of have kind of double or triple psychology and I don't know, consequent development of different type of personalities. No, it, it wasn't the case. And so it was very, uh, it was very common 
it was very common to speak about uh, psychology and you know the uh, double, triple, or quadruple standards. So yeah, it was very common, and it was relatively kind of free exchange of information, particularly among or, uh, like among your peers, for example. When I was student, and I, I would say that we. We were more or less kind of free, like uh, trading jokes and anecdotes and some type of information. Of course, we were aware that if you overtly and aggressively kind of expressing your dissent, it could be some type of consequences. And we know that it was very common for the system to uh, introduce and implement so-called stukachs or Rest, like informants, right, uh, into society on all levels and everywhere, university, like, you know, office, office, or like any your employment place and so on. And we understand that, you know, some of this information uh, may come up to the authorities. And so it was not very common to just to be punished for expressing your thoughts. So if you're trying to act, if you're trying to make some type of organization or even group, it was a bit different story. But just like, you know, for example, just to saying joke or like, you know, kind of passing one anecdote to another, it was a lot of political anecdotes at the time. It wasn't, it was very common at my generation to be punished for that. So it may happen theoretically and in, in, in practice it also happened probably with some people. It's relatively like probably low numbers, but yeah, it, it may happen. The only, country which probably, you know, excelled, you know, uh, more in this field probably East Germany, where study agents was like, you know, in bigger quantity and probably quality, you know, uh, throughout all society ranks. But in Soviet Union, it was very kind of, it's very common also, unfortunately. So, uh, but compared to the East Germany, by the way, the lists of informants were never published in Soviet Union. So uh, this, uh, this uh, disgrace, the, it, it had to happen. So it is. It should happen. So you graduate medical school in 1980. Yeah. Then you get your PhD in 1985. Right. And then, so you're working towards this thing, and then the Soviet Union collapses. Yeah. So what was that like, and how did it change in terms of what was possible for psychiatry? This is then they'll move to you getting to the United States. It was very interesting, kind of I would say, personal development for me. So at some point in my life, for example, when I, when I was a student and when I already became kind of young physician, I didn't seriously consider immigration. One encounter in my life changed everything. First time in my life at the age of 28, uh, with a group of physicians, I, I visited Hungary. And it, again, you know, it was first time in my life at the age of 28. So of course, it took some time for me to process through that because even the tourists, must get permission to leave the country. Hungary was considered a socialistic country, but not as socialistic as some others. So, and because of the 1956 rebellion, for example. And I met Sergei Belenki, who also a physician and who became my very, very close friend. He was raised with the help of the person. I mean, he was raised by parents, but you know, he was, he, he was taught English by Someone who was native speaker was very, very unusual at, at that time, Russia, and he was speaking English without accent, so it was very unusual. And who was, like, you know, who was very well educated person with a knowledge of, like, a lot of books and events and history, which I was not even, never, like, 
met someone before who was capable to give me so much information because again, you know, because he was reading in like, you know, in English and he was translator in multiple like, you know, congresses and symposiums and so on where he was having an opportunity to get books and read books. We are not on the uh, open circulation. So his kind of opportunity to get information was much better than for like average person in society. And in one year after that, I was very open to the idea that I have to leave uh, Soviet Union. And it wasn't the time when it was like perestroika yet, and it was open opportunities happened later on. So, but you know, uh, inside of my soul, I was feeling that, you know, it's probably time, time for me to leave. And I would say that my major motivation for me personally, I, I understand that it was probably a different motivation for, for a lot of different groups of immigrants. But for me, I didn't feel any real kind of need to move because of economical reason or because of political oppression. Even, of course, I was unsatisfied with society and with the rules and with the government and everything. But for me, I was looking, first of all, for the adventure, for something like, you know, the opportunity to, to, to see the world. And I was never really kind of was in close proximity to the uh, Western civilization. A lot of information came up from the my teenage love to the rock music, which was actually very, very important part of, I would say, kind of majority of teenagers of my generation. So rock music brought really kind of fresh wave of information and culture to us. So it was, I don't remember someone from the West told that like rock music is this what actually destroyed Soviet Union. grew up in this country that no longer exists, and now you have the benefit of years of clinical practice. If you're sort of to look back on the Soviet Union as a phenomena and try to diagnose it, what were the parts of it that really stand out to you as peculiar? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you tired of feeling lost in the world of trading and investing? Get informed and inspired with the Talking Trading Podcast. I'm Louise Bedford, and I'll help you navigate the markets like a pro. Tune in each week and subscribe now at talkingtrading.com.au or on your favorite podcast app, or check out the link in the show notes. Talking Trading, this is how traders excel. At the time of perestroika, we were kind of drunk with the freedom. I remember it, it probably was best time in my life, as I believe for majority of my generation, not only mine, but, you know, the, I remember my parents' feelings and, you know, their generation feelings. It was really great feelings, first of all, of facing new reality, facing real freedom. Society is opening up and we kind of be embraced by, by the Western world and world in general. And, Seeing the destruction of the regime and destruction of the all oppressive institutions, seeing how the crowd, like, you know, bringing down the kind of Dzerzhinsky pedestal, which is, was, uh, founder of KGB. It was really great feelings. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the best and the most kind of strong feelings I personally have experienced. So I may tell you just few, which is very, very specific. And I say, think it's, areas where Soviet Union and Soviet society achieved 
like really kind of high level. First of all, it's real kind of, we call it internationalism at the time, meaning kind of that freedom and friendship of the races and people around. And when I was growing up, I was, I'm growing up in the Ufa, which is the capital of Bashkortostan. Bashkors is a Ural ethnic groups, which like formerly Turkish family of uh, families and a lot of Tatars. I'm also ethnic Tatar. So it was even more Tatars than Bashkirs in the Ufa. It was roughly even higher uh, number of Russian speaking population, a lot of Ukrainians. And throughout my childhood and actually throughout my life in general in Soviet Union, the idea of nationality or race did not like really kind of something was bothering me. And, and so, of course, I understand there was some type of state kind of proclaimed and state supported anti-Semitism, for example. There was a suppression of the, for example, Crimean Tatars. So, but on my personal level, on the level of kind of, of my peers and my friends and, you know, everywhere. And so I later on moved and, and actually graduated from medical school in Kazan, which is capital of Tatarstan. So majority of the, like, you know, the group friends and, you know, informal, there was no any, like, national preferences, I would say. And it was real tolerance and it was real good, kind of good, friendly curiosity towards other races. For example, I don't remember when I saw the uh, black person first time in my life, but I remember feelings of, like, everyone around that we were just kind of curious and very friendly towards them. And it was stately proclaimed, like, you know, ideology. And it was good. And unfortunately, a lot of that changed since uh, Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, what was changed that because, you know, it's a lot of kind of racial and nationalistic and fundamentalistic ideas came up. And I'm not against, like, you know, the idea of national kind of conscience and culture and everything. But I'm, I'm personally indifferent to that. But I, I share and respect other people's feelings. But when it's getting to the point of aggression on even more like violence, of course, it's a different story. And unfortunately, this is what exactly what happened in the Soviet Union when it was collapsing. And we still like seeing the consequences of that. So it's just the latest one, the uh, still ongoing war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So which like kind of exacerbated few few weeks ago again. So it's, it's, it's okay. This is one achievement. Another achievement uh, is, uh, of course, education. So education and love, like literature, and acceptance writers as someone who kind of the leading, like thought leaders and <laughs> informal philosophers who ruling society and whether they still alive or they, they not existing anymore. So this level of respect towards like, you know, the uh, literature and writers, everyone was reading Tsvitaeva, Akhmatova, Pasternak, and so Mandlichtam. It was kind of, you kind of represent something low in, in your culture education if you didn't read poetry and you know poetry. So it was good. So such type of pressure, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It, the same applied to theater. So Soviet reality brought people uh, to the point when we didn't have much, so we are not rich, at least vast majority of society, but we have a lot of kind of intellectual property around us. So this was good. And we constantly were in change and fruitful and sometimes really creative conversations, which is other exchanging information, exchanging thoughts. So it was something which was maintaining creativity in culture and society in general. So I, and I think it's part of, part of the Russian, Russian in general, 
culture uh, which still exists. And that's why it's, it's giving such a huge kind of and really interesting results like, you know, in the uh, modern fields of IT and, and still like physics and chemistry and biology and so on. General level of medicine in Soviet Union and in modern day in Russia, if you're speaking about level which applies to the old territory and all population, of course, it's relatively low compared to the Western countries. And one of the problem is there is no so-called standard of care, which we have in the United States, for example, when in South Dakota, you may get more or less the same level of care compared, for example, to Boston or New York. And, uh, of course, there is some difference. And, of course, probably a surgeon in Columbia Presbyterian or Hospital for Special Surgery better than in the local rural hospital somewhere in the middle of the country. But it's not, not such, a, such a big difference. It's a really huge difference between leading academical and medical centers in Moscow or St. Petersburg compared to the small town, provincial, or rural hospitals in Russia, where it's not, not even the matter of level of professionalism, but basically sometimes just lack of the very simple medications and equipment. The advantage of the, of the Soviet medicine was definitely is huge achievement, for example, in immunization. Public health infrastructure was good, and it was... Like, you know, satisfying the basic needs for, like, annual checkup, for the lab work, for the being seen by the all leading uh, specialists. So child medicine was particularly strong. So immunization was total. And to my professional opinion, it is it, a good idea. So epidemiologically, Russia was very strong and defeated a lot of really kind of dangerous and deadly infectious disease, which was very common before revolution. What were some of the pathological parts of the Soviet Union? Pathological part of Soviet Union, it's lack of individual freedom, first of all. But we definitely didn't live in socialistic country. We lived in the country which proclaimed to be socialistic, but it, it, it wasn't socialistic at all. It was totalitarian regime with uh, aggressive protection by uh, special services and with uh, uh, ruled by the Communist Party. But it's nothing to do with the socialistic idea in general. Do you believe that there can be intergenerational trauma that sort of continues, that's like a collective trauma that people go through? One of the part of the uh, mentality of my generation specifically, it's, it was united and unifying recognition how wrong society is. Everyone was kind of anti-Sovietic, including the Soviet apparatchiks. They were like speaking about something as formally on the uh, party, party meetings and quite differently in their duchess and like when, when they're drinking with the friends or with the family and so on. It was when we're speaking about double or triple mentality, it's, it's funny, but it's not, doesn't apply to the like young, uh, rock music, uh, lovers like me or students. It applies universally to everyone. Like apparatchik were telling story and jokes and laughing and you know about the same reality, but it was like, Next morning, they were coming up, going to their offices and were speaking differently, like, you know, on the, when you're speaking, like, you know, in formal meetings. 
So from the perspective of somebody that grew up in such a different environment than the one that many Americans grew up in, when you look at the mental health challenges that your patients come to you at, there is a statement that I've seen from uh, the philosopher Karl Popper that basically a more open society, you get freedom, but you also get much more anxiety because there's less stability and control. Whereas in a controlled environment, like the one that you grew up in in the Soviet Union, you have no freedom, but there's much more predictability, even if some of the things that you are running into are things that are very unpleasant to deal with, like the secret police. So in your day-to-day -day practice, is that proven to be true? Yes. Of course, I'm not original with the statement that, you know, the anxiety is a prize for the, for, for, for the freedom. This is a prize which society in general and every individual paying, a majority of individuals. Yeah, and it's, again, you know, it's part of human nature. So statistics says that a lot of people, actually majority of people, would like to be under someone command. So 80% of people, even in the United States, kind of the society which cultivate freedom and individualism, they would like to be under the subordination. They don't want to be independently, like, you know, uh, ruling and be in charge of their lives completely. So it's easier to be under the umbrella protection of whether it's business or organization or whatever. And when you live in society where everyday life is changing so quickly, where social norm is changing, when the idea of sexuality and relationship is changing from day-to-day -day life, and uh, when the traditional institution of religion and family and, you know, relationship between government and society in general, individual is changing also. Options also bring in anxiety, right? And if you're getting more flexibility, more freedom, so it's, it's bringing anxiety. Look, as a physician, when you recommend some type of intervention, like whether it's medication or procedure or psychotherapy or any other type of treatment intervention, you're always thinking about risk and benefits. So, and if benefits uh, hugely outweigh the risk, then you recommend. And so here, if you ask me in general, like, what would you prefer to still live in conservative society and to keep like anxiety, uh, you know, uh, at bay and uh, or to, to go the way the, you know, the planet and society going at present time? I would say that I would prefer progress. Some people who are tied to the podcast uh our, our, our readers of the book, Raising a Thief. From a psychiatric perspective, just in simple terms, not in clinical terms, what is reactive attachment disorder? And is it more common with kids from Eastern Europe? And if so, why? So we may speculate, yes, that it could be the case. Why? Because you see much more dysfunctional families, unfortunately, in the Eastern Europe, particularly in Russia, probably. Uh, and the problem is, uh, a lot of economic reasons, a lot of it's coming from the drug and alcohol abuse. A lot of that is coming because, yeah, because, you know, the, the huge geopolitical changes in society, which destroyed very often families, even, even if someone is a family, like, you know, filled with a good intention. So, but it's still changed and, you know, some may leave family and leave it behind, and it's definitely making an impact. So there is a counterpart of that. Uh, I, I know that very big proportion of the modern Russian families, 
they tend to have more than one or two kids. And I see that is a very, very good movement. So it's, 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 it's plenty of families nowadays in Russia who have like three, four, five kids even. And they, they really devoted to them. They trying to give them good education and a lot of care. And they, it's, they, like family, they, they kid oriented. So it, it's good. And I hope that, you know, this movement will be like growing up and prevailing eventually in society. And I wish you all the best because nothing is probably more sad than small creature, which is not possible, you know, for whom it's not possible to make any anything which could protect or benefit him. He's quite dependent from the environment. And, you know, we, look, I'm, I'm, I'm father and I'm grandfather. And when you're looking into the, I don't know, the one-year-old baby who trying to contact and, you know, who tried to manage his existence with very simple systems of response and contacts with the reality, which is what? His face expression, right? And sounds he's making. And very, very successful sometimes. But environment must be responsive. If you're not getting responsive environment, it's tragedy. What's the prognosis for kids like this? I cannot give you a general prognosis for all kids of that. If you're speaking about, like, you know, statistic in mass impact, is definitely huge. Definitely huge on all levels. It's, it's huge on the level of psychopathology. It's huge on the uh, level how you're developing. It's huge on the level of how confident you are. So very typical speculation, for example, in psychology, we are speaking about anxiety. So anxiety is kind of, there is a, uh, reverse relationship with the self-confidence. The more self-confident you are, the less anxious you are in vice versa. Of course, it's not general, not universal and still speculation. No one measured that, but you know, it's, it's, it's existing. So self-confidence is what very often basis of your success and your growth, personal, professional and so on. And so look, your problem is peeling up. So if you're growing up, from the very childhood with some type of deficiency or trauma. Of course, like, you know, it's, it's making impact on how, how do you do in school? How are you making your friends? Are you, are you getting more, like, you know, some type of support around you?